Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. A couple of months ago, I sat down with Scott Jenkins. Back then, the Moab 240 was his dream race. Now, I am very happy to report he is a Moab 240 finisher. By completing the race in 93 hours, 58 minutes and 14 seconds, he becomes the first ever Welshman to finish one of the most famous ultra marathons on planet Earth. I feel privileged to now call Scott a friend and I loved sitting down with him and his wife over a bottle of whiskey to celebrate and debrief his extraordinary experience. Scott Jenkins is on Why in the World. back sitting at the lovely centre island here in Scott Jenkins' kitchen. This time a bit different, he's actually cooked me a roast dinner and uh, it's the first podcast where we are having uh, a celebratory drink as well because if you don't know and you haven't listened to the first episode, uh, go back and check that out now but Scott is now officially the first Welshman to finish the Moab 240. Thank you very much, Ben. That's uh, that's quite the uh, quite the introduction. I'm, I think I'm probably uh, the first guest on the show to uh, cook you a roast dinner as you come to visit as well. First person, and it's coming up to Christmas. And you know, when you said it to me on Instagram, I thought it's make or break if there's pigs or blankets or not. And thankfully, your lovely wife doesn't like pigs or blankets, so uh, we uh, we managed to double up there as well. So I'm very very happy on that. We we did, um, but I ate six of them. You only had four, <laughs> but I ate two well, so I was prepping. I the did food. see you doing that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did see you doing that. The chef's uh, chef's rules, right? You, you can help yourself while you're cooking. How far are we removed from the finish of that race now? Just coming up to two months, actually. So uh, it started on. I think it was the 11th of October and uh, we're in, uh, well, just coming up towards the 11th of December. Does it feel real yet? Yeah, a little bit real. I keep having kind of flashbacks to it. I'm like, oh, wow, I can't remember that that happening. And then you look at a photo and you're like, oh, yeah, that, that did kind of happen. And I think, you know, during the race, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it in a, in a couple of minutes, but like, it's such a long distance that whilst you're running it, you, you encounter so many uh, kind of, moments where it's just like wow the scenery is amazing but also so many moments that are just so difficult to, to get through when you were actually on that plane and you were flying out to do this race and that was your sole and only goal what were you thinking to yourself were you thinking mate what have you got yourself into here yeah it's kind of a mixed one really because you sat on the plane you're like right I've been training for this race for so long I know it's going to be like a huge undertaking you know, if you, you put 240 miles into the UK, it's the same as getting out the door here in Twickenham and, and running all the way to, you know, just before Carlisle. So it's such a long way. But I was trying not to think about that. I was trying to just think about distances that I'd covered in the past and, and knowing that I could cover those distances and breaking the race down into segments, really. And when I got on the plane, it's hard not to kind of fall into holiday mode and you're getting on a, on a plane, you're flying to the States and it was really difficult in the, the first kind of couple of days because uh, we flew into Denver and Colorado to kind of remind myself that I'm not on holiday, I'm, I'm here on a, a business trip if you like. Yeah, and keep keep the mindset strong in that, you know, in two or three days time, it's going to be at the start line of this race and like those first couple of days in Colorado are really just adjusting, adjusting mm. to the altitude. I think you get off um, off the plane, they call it the mile high city. So you get off, you're already at altitude and you do feel it. The first couple of days we've taken some altitude tablets and I noticed that I started to get like pins and needles in my feet. So I was having kind of reaction to those. So we just started hiking around and, and doing some shorter runs trying to acclimatise. Did you feel pressure? Um, no, not really. I was nervous, like the right kind of nervous. Not nervous that I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do it nervous that I was just kind of excited and, and ready to, and kind of raring to go. The only time I kind of weirdly feel a bit pressurised if I started thinking to myself, oh, I really want to be the first Welsh person to do it. But then if I step back from that, it doesn't really you know, mean a great deal other than it's just something that I wanted to achieve cool as a goal. Thing, so yeah. nobody, nobody's going to know if I did it or not. Was there any doubt, though? Did you think, I'm not sure if I'm physically capable of doing this? Yeah, probably the the night before the race. That was, um, you know, that reality of going to bed and thinking, oh, you know, when I get up in the morning, I'm not going to be back in bed for at least like another four days, which is, um, 
it's pretty difficult to think well that's a long time and then you think to yourself that's a long time full of a hell of a lot of running um so yeah it, it was a bit of nervousness but a little bit of excitement a little bit the right kind of pressure to, to make you perform and um yeah i guess the thing for me that i was really mindful of was not getting caught up in like the the hoo-ha and you know razzmatazz of like the race and the check-in and these people that are there that have got a big names you know likes of goggins etc and just other runners like just other people it sucks for them as much as it sucks for all of us right to live up to expectations was was it what you thought it would be i think it, it definitely lived up expectations if not exceeded them i guess before every race that you've never done before you have a kind of idea in your head of what the course might be like what the situations you encounter might be like and some of it was very much like I expected it to be and other parts were way harder than I expected them to be in particular uh, mile 110 to 121 on Shea Mountain in my head I'd already kind of decided that the Sal Mountains were going to be harder because uh, they're higher elevation longer distance in Shea Mountain, it was just one huge mountain up to like 9,000 foot and you were climbing from 4,000 foot, I think, at the bottom. And it was just rugged, rugged terrain. You know, I think that's where Goggins may have got lost uh, one of the times during the race. Huge boulders. It felt like you were bushwhacking at times and right. not like a race course that I'd ever encountered. And um, some of the rocks that you're kind of climbing up and you, you weren't kind of just running you were pulling yourself up onto these rocks or doing the equivalent of like box steps into the gym to get to the next rock and that was really really tough and then we got to the top of there and you ran down the backside you know maybe a couple of thousand foot through this really narrow path it got really dark and I thought oh right well we must be near the aid station and then it kind of went down a bit further down a bit further and then it started climbing back up and you're like oh my god I thought we were already you know we we're going to be there in like 30 minutes and it took like another hour and a half or something and that was a kind of constant theme you'd always think oh the aid station's not too far away mm. but it was and there was only one aid station where I hit it way before I expected it to be and that was um, Pole Canyon at 184 miles I was expecting to be there at like 10 p.m. And I ended up getting in there at like 8 p.m. I was like, wow, this, this, this is pretty cool. Uh, and that really set me up then for the, the tough part through the Sal Mountains. I want to go from A to B. That's probably the easiest way of doing this, I think, from the start to the finish. And let's start by there's that really cool photo of you holding your number right at the start of the race. I saw that photo for the first time and I thought, oh God, here we go. I can't imagine what you were feeling at that point. What did that feel like? Did you get that feeling in your yeah, tummy? Yeah, like- I was super excited, man. Like, I was really excited by that moment. It was just like, I'd kind of pictured it in my head and it was exactly what I expected it to be like. You know, just uh, checked in, you know, met Candice and, and the other volunteers that were helping at the race and everyone was like super nice. That's the one thing I'd say like about Destination Trail as a company, like the, the people were just fantastic, the volunteers, you know, some of them out there for like four or five days, maybe even two weeks for the people that are marking the courses and everyone at like the aid stations from the beginning of the race to the end of the race were just super lovely, mm-hmm. really good people. But that's, I guess, you know, you've experienced it races yourself, ultra running people, you know, they understand because they they know what it's like to go through these races. I experienced you at an aid station, so I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely, and it was just really cool to get checked in and, and think, right, okay, tomorrow you've got to put up or shut up, I guess. When you saw the terrain for the first time, because actually that was one of my favourite moments of the first podcast we did together, when you were talking about that terrain that maybe you used to see on the old cowboy movies, and actually let's get into that in a sec, but you saw the mountains you saw these cliffs these bluffs did they sort of take your breath away was that something that you were just like wow i'm gonna be racing over that yeah it's amazing and it was super cool like the whole drive down from like colorado because you go through the rockies so you go up from denver into the rockies and then you drive down if you ever get a chance or any listeners do to to go out to colorado or that part of the world it's just spectacularly beautiful and we spent a few days at altitude training and went down to telluride which is um 
Interestingly, the the first place that Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kids uh, robbed a bank. There, you, there go. you go, bit of history. History on the podcast tonight. Um, so that was fantastic. Spent a few days there and then we drove down to Utah and the landscape just completely changes from these kind of red rock bluffs and cliffs into these canyons and then back again. And it's hard to describe really because you don't get that same sense of scale in, in the UK with the scenery but it's just massive, like, sky country. You look in, you're thinking, okay, those are those mountains over there we're going to run through, and they're, like, 100 miles away, and you can see them. It's just Madness. it's just crazy. And, and this is uh, an interesting story. So I had two other paces, other than my wife, Abby Fleming, uh, Jacob Cooper, who drove all the way from um, just outside Lake Tahoe. He lives in Reno in Nevada. I like the full names, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I've got to get them in there. They've earned it. They've earned it. Um, and uh, my good friend from Penarth in Wales, uh, Rid Morgan. Do you know his middle name? Uh, um God, you've really oh, put Ritz. Ritz. Uh, well, we're going to have to go with He's Dave. Welsh. Dave. Dave. <laughs> Dave. <laughs> I was going to say something like oh, Rod Ridgery. Rod, Rod, Rod uh, no. Uh, Ridgery Rod Ridgery Morgan. Yeah, it works. It works. Uh, Ridian Morgan, to use his full name, doesn't have a middle name. He flew into Denver and hired a car, as you do. Went to hire a, a nice car. And um, as he went to hire the car, uh, they said to him, oh, you're going to need a 4x4 four four if you're going down to Utah. So he, uh, he ended up ponying up uh, an extra thousand dollars for a, a, sub, a suburban Tahoe, lovely car, solid four-wheel drive. Uh, anyway, he, he decided to drive through the night down to Utah to meet us because he wanted to be there for the race check-in, which is you know admirable and, and it's great to have that kind of support from your friends. But he had a bit of an incident on the way down. Oh, okay. He was just outside of a, a city called Grand Junction. It's more like a junction. There's less grand about it is what I would say is a it's place. It's normal junction. It's just a junction with a bit of dwellings around it. <laughs> but he, he, it was the middle of the night and uh, this huge black thing ran out in front of the suburban um now the, the suburban for your listeners who aren't from america is, is quite a large car kin to an oil tanker on uh, on the roads is what i would say and um anyway it turned out that he uh, he, he ran straight through a bear um which was uh, awful for the bear and not so good for him but um yeah it took him less than six hours in america to kill a bear um anyway he he made it down to the start and um yeah, quite the experience in getting I, to the race. I imagine him getting there and like being like, right, like got to get my head in the game. I know what I'm doing. My job is to pay Scott now. I've got to forget about this poor dead bear that yeah. I've just brutally murdered. I was a bit surprised to be honest, but what gave it away was that there was loads of fur sticking out of the, <laughs> sticking out of the fender of the car, and also um, oh, a stain dear. which uh, any kind of human or mammal or animal would leave as as they passed from the world and uh, were hit by a suburban Tahoe. Into bear heaven, if you will. Yeah, into bear heaven. heaven. So it was was quite a traumatic start to the race for him, to be fair. But um, yeah, it was uh, just an incredible adventure from start to finish for everyone. Your start must have been, uh, I mean, there were probably no dead bears at that, but standing that start line, getting ready to go, that must have felt special. Yeah, it, it would have if it wasn't minus eight and, and five o'clock in the morning. Um, it was, uh, I mean, the temperature dropped massively the week that we were there. So all of a sudden it meant that I had to like panic buy really, really warm clothes. I kind of envisaged it getting down to like zero, maybe a couple above zero. But they had this kind of weather system come through. It was minus eight. Um, so it's minus eight at night and then daytime like 25, 26. So that kind of created its own problems in kind of managing temperature throughout the race but at the start I mean there's a lot of like razzmatazz you know they've got the anthems going on and you know Candice kind of gets up and says a bit about like if you get hurt lost or die it's your own damn fault I'd I'd love to know whether you have to say that whether it's like a verbal disclaimer (laughs) that they record or not as the case may be it was a pretty interesting start to the race I I went to the toilet before the race and uh, bumped into David Goggins he seemed like a nice chap um, and then I came out of there and yeah just went and sat on a bench and everyone else was kind of sat starting you know in, in front of the the huge arch there and they sang the national anthem I just put my uh, my earphones in after that and just I listened to Welsh national anthem actually before oh. the start just Did after I, I listened to American anthem because I, I like I quite like that anthem and obviously you know you need to show your respect etc um, but then I thought actually I should listen to my anthem as well because that's what would happen in a football or rugby game 
that's just the uh, the whiskey pourer. Before we went away, Ben very kindly said that if I did well, he'd come back, get me a bottle of whiskey, and we'd do a second follow-up podcast with a bottle of whiskey. And um, he's a, a man of his words, is what I would say. Words. And Abby's still in crew, crew mode, <laughs> pouring out whiskey now, although I think she's not going to be as horrible tonight as she was to me at Moab. Those first few hundred metres... What is your mindset? You know, what what are you thinking about? I think I had ner- more nerves the night before. I didn't have that many nerves at the start of the race. Did you sleep to start? Yeah, I did sleep. Yeah, did you? I, I did, yeah. I, I tried to force myself. I think I woke up once or twice, but I did sleep pretty well. And all I thought to myself was, right, I'm going to run the first nine miles, get to the aid station, eat some more food. I did instruct the crew that when I got to the second aid station, I'd love a McDonald's sausage McMuffin. And that's something I'd probably do at a, a race here as well. Just because normally you start early, you need breakfast, you need some calories as well, and mm. you never really can get enough early in the morning. I was just thinking, right, just you know, go out, enjoy it. And the first kind of seven, no, probably six miles are through town, so you're running through back from Moab town, and it's kind of weird because it's just like a regular Friday morning. People are up early, they're going about their business, and all of a sudden, you know, there's two hundred odd runners running down the side of a road who are about to go through a a heck of an experience. Talk me through where we're looking at checkpoints, just so everybody that doesn't know knows exactly kind of where we're talking about. We've got Scott's T-shirt, by the way, in front of us, which has got um, the elevation and it's also got checkpoints and stuff like that. The elevation looks absolutely mental to start with. And also it goes up a lot from 170 right through to about... Two two five, yeah, like that, yeah, which is obviously not where you want the elevation to be, really, right at the end of a two hundred and forty mile race. And what's the sort of distances that you get in between checkpoints? Um, so they're pretty consistent. So I, th- I think you know it starts off with uh, the Hidden Valley checkpoint, which is at mile nine point three, then goes to Amasa back at seventeen point eight, Haral Pass thirty two point eight. Breaking Bad at 57 miles. Uh, then you're on to Indian Creek at 72 miles. The island at 87. It's taken a while to get through these aid stations, but I'll persevere. It's almost like a, an endurance event in itself. Bridge of Jack at 102. Shea Mountain at 121. Uh, Dry Valley at 140. Wind Whistle at 153, which lived up to its name. Uh, Road 46, 167. Pole Canyon at 184. Uh, Giza Pass at, at 201 uh, Porcupine Rim at 223 <sighs> take a breath and then you, you finally get to the end at 240.2 allegedly but it's actually about 244 miles <laughs> so um, you know as is the way I think we said in the last show you Everybody always get lies. a little bit more bang for your buck with these races Everybody yeah so um, the elevation I mean it, it starts off it's kind of up and down um, you some steep little climbs and then you're down and then you're up and then you're down for the kind of five, first nine to I would say 18 miles a, a massa back you're kind of constantly going up and down the cool thing about a massa back is that probably around 15 miles you come over the top of the um the, the kind of wall of canyon that you've been running along and you can look down for the first time and, and see the colorado river running between the canyons and that that was pretty awesome um and at that point i started running alongside this guy called luke from uh, pennsylvania who's a really nice guy really nice guy it's a prison guard so he's keeping me in check as we as we're going and you know we're having some interesting conversations about you know what he does and stuff and um yeah we we kind of ran into that first aid station together the crew were there with the mcdonald's and um yeah everything i needed i think the the thing from the beginning with the race organizers with destination trail was that um the aid stations were just on a different level to anything i've ever experienced you know do you want a quesadilla do you want a pizza burger you know anything I, I remember having meatballs and all sorts of uh, different aid stations and the event was so well organized and so well marked out from my perspective I, I thought it was just incredible that they can put on a race that's 244 miles long but also provide like the best marking and the best uh, aid stations pretty mm-hmm. impressive because it's so remote it is literally the middle of nowhere yeah you can't uh, travel 240 miles without at some point it being genuinely the middle of nowhere oh no but you could in the UK. You know, wow. Yeah, I mean, if you were just going to drive straight up a motorway. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right in that sense. 
when you come through then the first aid station, we talked about this in the previous podcast, the distance that you've run, if we're just going to say what is the furthest distance you've run before this, mm. is nowhere near the 240 miles. Mm. So at the end of the race, it's total unknown. Are you thinking about that constantly or how are you kind of getting through it in your head that you're, you're ticking down these miles, but you're just kind of that is just looming over you sure yeah so I didn't check my watch too much like I just thought right I'll run aid station to aid station I'll talk to the runners that are around me but I'll also put my music in as well to make sure that I've um, you know got some entertainment going but you need to be considerate of the, the conditions and the, and the the actual elements that you're facing, the terrain. Now, the, the thing that's really interesting for me on, on this section of the race, right up until 72 miles, is that you start at, what, 6 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock in the morning, beg pardon, and it's minus whatever it is, the temperature. Now, that's pretty cold, which means that you've got an awful lot of layers on. So then you, you run to the first aid station and you're taking all the layers off. But the problem you've got is that you can't ditch all those layers because you won't see your crew and there's no drop bags between mile 18 and 72.3. So if you're running a sensible race, that means you're going to run through the day in the temperatures uh, 26 to, to kind of 30 degrees Celsius. Pretty hot. Big temperature change and difference. But also, it's a huge swing. It's a massive swing. It's nuts. Like you'd never experienced anything like that in in the UK, and it, it's hard to get your, your head around and comprehend. But I just had to go with it and be like, okay, I'll accept that that's what the weather's going to be. However, now I need to plan to take off my clothes, which are going to be slightly damp, in at eighteen miles. Put them all into my backpack. Hope that they're not going to get too much more damp, because I know that. You know, the sun's going to go down relatively early, let's say 7 p.m. All of a sudden, as soon as that sun's gone, you need those warm clothes back on, but there's no aid station, there's no backup. So I had to carry all those clothes for the, the first kind of 72 miles and, you know, have to put them on. That presents its own challenge because as soon as the sun went down, it just got absolutely Baltic real, real quick. And, you know, frost forming on the floor... I remember Hurrah Pass getting there in the, the kind of early afternoon and it was super warm like, to a point where I, I drank all of my water that I had on me. Um, I sat down on a, on a kind of water container at the aid station, putting my bottle underneath the aid station cooler, drinking some water, drinking more water. Because I knew that from that point to Breaking Bad, which is at 60 miles... I wouldn't have the opportunity to, to get to another aid station. The aid station in the middle of that, between Hurrah Pass and Breaking Bad, is actually around 47, but it's unmanned. It's just water containers in the desert. So I knew that I had to kind of stage this part of the race really, really carefully. Make sure I've got enough water, make sure I've got enough food, get through the canyon section to the water containers, replenish, and then go again. But I remember probably... 15 miles after Hurrah Pass, probably a couple of miles short of that, those water containers, and it's still boiling, boiling hot, I had no water, you know, dry as a whistle, and just thinking, oh my God, I've got to get to these water containers. Eventually got there. So actually a lot of that first section of the race was taken up with like logistical kind of thinking and thinking, mm. right, okay, I've got to make sure I get close enough to be able to, to survive. Did you realise that it was going to be quite that huge a swing in temperature? I was expecting it to be a less uh, of a swing in That's temperature. so big. Ridium was driving down in, in the Colorado-Utah Utah border and it was snowing. And then you're thinking, I'm putting sun cream on now the next day and it's Jesus. running. It's just absolutely crazy. Breaking Bad as an aid station, that one was one of the... Some of them seem to... You know, they always seem to be longer than you thought. But Breaking Bad in particular, I can remember seeing the lights from a distance because you're in the middle of the desert and you're kind of manoeuvring around these bluffs and cliffs and going back and forth in the dark and you can see this aid station like twinkling and the lights but you have no concept of how far it is other than looking at your watch but as you know yourself with these races through nobody's fault they're never really entirely accurate on the placement of the of the aid station it, it could be in within a mile or past a mile but it's usually in the in the ballpark i just remember we're breaking bad thinking oh my god like it's never coming and we got there eventually and um 
sat down they had, this is the other thing that was super cool they had massive fire pits because it was so cold they had fire pits at the aid station we sat around the fire pit and this uh, this American fella popped off and uh, came back with this wrap with hash browns and cheese in and um, I was a bit tired at that point but you know as soon as I ate that I was like right okay let's just get out because you know if we sit around here too long we're just going to freeze our asses off so we got out me and this uh, this guy from Pennsylvania Luke and and carried on uh, heading towards Indian Creek at 72 miles. First time you've mentioned tiredness. Mm. Tiredness must have been a massive, massive thing yeah, during the that, whole race. Definitely, and, and that, that, that's the thing that I've probably underestimated the most, despite knowing what everyone says about it. You think you can combat it, and I'm sure as you get further into the race itself, you kind of hopefully I can give people a, an idea of what it was like, but... For me, Indian Creek was the, the first place that I decided to have a sleep. I said to, to Luke, the lad from Pennsylvania that's running with, that when we get to Indian Creek, it's going to be like 1am. I want to sleep for, for an hour. Um, I'm going to get a hamburger from the aid station. I'm going to sleep for an hour. And he, fortunately for me, wanted to do the same thing. So that's what we did. We got to the aid station, grabbed a burger, slept in, in the back of the, the, the Tahoe, uh, moved the bare fur out of the way, and uh, <laughs> yeah, we decided to have a sleep. So that, that worked quite well. Slept for an hour, came back out, it was just as cold, uh, and that was, that was pretty miserable because I didn't really sleep that well. It was pretty cramped up. You know what it's like when you've been running 72 miles, your feet start to ache and you're getting cramps and stuff in the legs. So it was actually to get back out and start moving. Once once you get moving, it's fine. But if you stood around in that cold, it just hits you pretty quick. Where was the tipping point for you? Because, you know, we're going to get into certain things that I saw and certain things that I know that we've chatted about before. Where was the tipping point? Where did it become something different to just a normal race? That's a really good question, and I'm sure there are ups and downs in any ultra. And um, I think this, you know, for the first, I'd actually say 200 miles, no, maybe 190 miles. So somewhere between Pole Canyon and Giza Pass, it started to unravel a little mm. bit, if you like. That that particular section, I remember, from Pole Canyon to Giza Pass being very, very difficult. Um, that was the point where it probably went a bit south and and then it started to unravel a bit further but actually like the first night the second night weren't so bad um you know running from um indian creek through to the island was um was really nice like it, it was cold but you, you get to see the sun come up and actually i met a fan in that section ben you don't know how many people i've told this story <laughs> so many people have heard this story <laughs> probably about six o'clock in the morning the sun's starting to come up picture, picture it now picture it now right I'm thinking red I'm rock thinking. bluffs in the distance a couple of mazes maybe a, a bird flying low in the sky a lot of water on the ground it was quite icy and um i came upon this uh, this gentleman and his uh, his pacer a uh, lovely guy called cameron uh, and he was a really nice lad he'd actually just finished uh, running coast to coast in the states so we were having a chat about that and um we're talking about our uh, our various experiences. You know what it's like in ultras, right? You, you come up on someone, you check and see if they're all right, and you get to talking. So me and Jake, uh, who was pacing me at that point, and him and his uh, his girlfriend uh, were chatting. She said, oh, where, where are you from? I said, oh, I'm from London. She said, oh, okay, very, very good. So she said, um, have you ever been on a podcast before? One of those podcasts. One of those. I said, what, 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 well, what, what, what's this? this? One of these podcasts? And she said, yeah, uh, I was listening to this podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago, and this guy from uh, London in the UK uh, was doing a, um, doing a doing the Moab. I said, oh, right, okay. So, yeah, it's, it was called Why in the World. Hey. She listened to that episode and then went to listen to the other episodes, and it was super cool. I was like, yeah, that's my guy, that's Ben so Shepard. He's a man. And uh, she was really, really excited. It was nice. I no, wish I I'd had really a t shirt. When your wife dropped me a text and said it, I was like, I'm so happy. Yeah. I'm so happy. Waking up at 2 a.m. in the morning to check the tracker is paying off. That's what I was thinking at that point. Well, let's hope she's still listening. If she is, can you give her a shout out and just say hello? Go on. Hello. <laughs> hello, American mystery woman. And um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for following the show. Yeah, thank you so much. I do really appreciate it. Tell uh, every single person you know on a five-star rating a positive review would be wonderful. Thank you very much for that. Five stars for five stars. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
it's such a mad race to think about and I was so invested in it like I wasn't obviously I wasn't even there I wasn't supporting I wasn't doing anything like that but I was at home just refreshing the track and constantly just checking where you were thanks and man I think it's just one of those things because it is quite an inconceivable distance I think and I think even when we talked before you know when you said the mileage that he would run before Moab which was Remind me exactly the mileage, like the furthest you'd run at that point was one of the canal races. Uh, 154 right? miles, I 154 think. 154 yeah. miles. Like you're going pretty much 90 miles further than, than that, which is unbelievable. Did you have your watch on the whole time? Oh, that's a sore topic. Is it? Yeah. No charge from the crew? N- well, no, the crew were impeccable the whole way through the race. Okay. But um, when I started to unravel in the last 20 miles or so, I'd been so on it I charged the watch every time it got below 10% and um, yeah I got to 224 miles and first thing I did when I woke up uh, the next morning before kind of gaining normality was check my Garmin and um, it died at 224 miles so the loop was never complete so I'll have to go back when you see that tick over then on your watch when you see that distance go down you've now run the furthest you've ever run how did you feel because it's all new territory from then Actually, I remember exactly where it was. So, bizarrely, you're in the middle of the desert, okay, and it's between Wind Whistle and Road 46. So, Wind Whistle's 153 miles. And I think I remember looking at my watch at about 157 miles, and I, I was running along, and this, um, this dune buggy pulls up alongside me. This American guy who's like in charge of rescuing people from difficult situations in the race. I was talking to him, lovely guy, and we were chatting away. I'm running and he's driving the dune buggy alongside. And I looked at my watch. I was like, wow, this is the furthest I've ever run. He's like, oh, great job, man. So we're, we're kind of, you know, chewing the fat. And he, he stuck with me for about a mile or so. And I saw this huge rock, huge, massive red rock. I'm, I'm guessing like maybe five, six stories high and the width of like a, a two... Twickenham Rugby Stadium something like that and there's all these houses underneath the rock like nice houses like you know white picket fences and stuff I said excuse me can you can you see these houses as well or am I imagining this and he went oh yeah yeah I see them alright I said what what the hell are these houses doing out here in the middle of nowhere and he said oh it's where um, the Mormons live the people live there and they'll have like four wives and I'm like I said, okay, thanks. And then he just drove off and left me there. I thought, well, maybe I'll take a detour and have a look. When did it really start to unravel for you? I've got a theory on this. Last time I gave you my theory on the uh, central nervous system I and need ultra to running. you like a jingle. I was thinking this the other day. It'd be like, theory of the Scott day. Jenkins, theories. Amateur theory of the day. Um, so amateur theory of the day section uh, involved um, the section... From Road 46, I would say, to Giza Pass. So I'd run through the first night, slept for an hour uh, at the um, the Indian Creek aid station. Then I'd run all the way through to the top of Shea Mountain, got there at, I think, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock the, the night after. I was aiming to sleep for two hours, but I got really annoyed because people kept coming into the, the tent and also it was freezing. So I got up after about an hour and a half went searching around the car park on the side of this, the summit of this mountain, bumped into Candice like four or five times. I'm like, where are my crew? I need to find my crew. So I found them and I'm like, they're sleeping in the car. I'm like banging on the window. I'm like, this is it. I'm going. I've had enough. Like, it's too cold. I'm just running. My, my friend Rid was like trying to get out of the car, trying to cobble his kit together and get on it. I was like, just don't worry. I'll see you at the next one. I'm going and bless him. You know, he made me wait. It was a sensible thing to do. And, um, he got out of the car and started running with me and at that point I felt actually quite good you know because I'd had a bit of a sleep and I felt pretty decent so I started running and you know got through that section to dry valley got into dry valley and um, there was people down there tending to blisters so I got the blisters done and came out of there and Jake took over and he was running alongside me I was probably doing a bit too much walking at that point but I was I was feeling pretty good you know considering the mileage got to wind whistle and it was baltic because as you can imagine by the name it's super windy mm. they seem to have managed to put the aid station at that point in the windiest place as well i think that was intentional so people didn't settle <laughs> got out of wind whistle started moving all right got down to road 46 
Uh, there was a lovely chap behind the uh, the aid station down there, and I asked him straight away. I said, "What are you cooking?" He said, "I'm cooking meatballs." I said, "Oh, okay. Well, that that sounds sounds nice. Not going to repeat on me later up the mountain." And he, he looked rather offended, and you know, I, I didn't mean to offend him. I was very grateful for the meatballs. I just inquiring as to just the validity the of yeah. whether they're going to make me sick or not later. Turned out they were lovely, so I smashed a load of those back, and the guy said. You know what? You're doing really well in this race. And I went, oh, am I? You know, where am I? What am I doing? They're like, well, you're inside the top twenty at the moment. And oh, that's good. Well, we can go from here with no sleep. Let me tell you. And they were like, okay, that's fine. Have a can of Monster. So I had a can of Monster, and they're like, yeah, you should take some uh, take some Pro Plus as well. I'm like, hmm, this will perk things up a bit. And I absolutely flew like up this section and three or four thousand foot of elevation in that section i was going past people um you know and that was the section pole canyon where i came into the aid station like two hours ahead of time came in and i just thought to myself well i'm just gonna spend 20 minutes here and um gonna eat some hot dogs smash back a couple of hot dogs loads of pringles and i remember there's a italian guy that i'd run uh, part of the race with a guy called uh, cesare rotundo uh, that was quite that was good that was, was good. way was good. better than the man more. of a million accents American um, accent yeah. <laughs> yeah my accents are dreadful um, but I was having a chat to him and he's like are you going to sleep and I was like no no sleep's overrated don't you worry about that um, so yeah just smashed some food in and, and got moving and um, that section then becomes very very difficult Pole Canyon to Giza Pass was the most challenging part of physically of the the race i think um started off you know really powering out of the aid station got up over the first peak and i said to jake i said bloody hell we've done this now we're up at the top here he said i don't know man i think you know we still got a ways to go yet i was like okay fine so we carried on and this section in particular was horrible like it it just because it's the middle of the night it's freezing but also every now and then you glimpse a head torch and you couldn't really figure out whether that person was in front of you or behind you. Where are we mileage-wise? Oh, probably about 185, 190, something like that. This one section, you know, the route was awful. Um, Not for any point of the course marking, but in that section, they do have problems with the course marking where the cows come and eat some of the markers. But the section itself felt like you were going round in circles, especially probably... The last three or four miles, I just kept saying to Jake, I said, I, I think we're going the wrong way. And he's like, no, no, this is what the GPS said. So I kept getting my GPS out and questioning him, unfairly questioning him. But I was concerned that I'd come all that way and we were heading off in completely the wrong direction. And people do get lost in that section. I, I, I It was just hard to describe because it's so dark. You're so high up. I mean, would you ever go up Ben Nevis in minus eight middle of the night and Ben Nevis is what like 4,000 foot 5,000 foot here I am you know what business do I have being at the top of the LaSalle mountains in the middle of the night 200 miles into you need a foot comparison race. sometimes that's a good way of putting it would you ever do that and not, I don't think there's a single person that says yes listen to this now and if they do say yes you need to reconsider your thoughts yeah, because that's just no you wouldn't of course you wouldn't. No, you, you wouldn't. And um, out there, that's what we're doing. But actually, I'd just run 200 miles to get, to get there. So, um, you know, by the time I came into Giza Pass, I think, you know, Abs and the guys said I was, you know, well inside the top 20. And you know, I was really, really surprised and, and pleased at that because I, I didn't feel physically in that much pain. You know, mm. I dosed up on ibuprofen here and there, paracetamol, the monster, etc. was working a charm. But... Looking back now, you could probably pinpoint that that, was, that last 10 miles up to Giza Pass was where it started unraveling. Mm. Got into the aid station. That was the cowboy section, by the way. So uh, for your listeners that haven't seen the, the Facebook video, there was, uh, there was a couple of cowboys out on the course during that section. And when I was questioned uh, at the aid station about how the section went, I um, described vividly seeing uh, two cowboys sat on the rock just watching the race at three o'clock in the morning they asked me what did they the cowboys say i said well they just said well done and I, they asked me what they looked like and i said well one of them looked quite mexican he had like that kind of square mustache with a sombrero on 
Uh, and the other one was very American looking cowboy but they were they were great guys I think you go well they look like cowboys <laughs> well yeah. there you go That's very descriptive like. very they descriptive look like cowboys. Uh, it was also at that aid station where I picked up a blanket and just looked across at the American runner next to me I don't know whether I was just trying to psych him out with uh, great psychology but I put the blanket over my head and went <laughs> at least you still had your personality ate another hot dog ate some food um, looking back at the photos of me at that aid station I look like a man you know when you, you've been to Ibiza and you see people in the airport like San Antonio airport waiting to go home and they look broken you didn't look there from the photos I saw of you you didn't really look present I do want to touch on the, the crew quickly because I know you know you've been hugely thankful to them yeah do you think you could have done this without them Absolutely not. I mean, there's people out there with no crew, which is, um, you know, kudos to them for that. You know, my crew were impeccable the whole way through the race. If it wasn't for them, I couldn't have done it from start to finish. They looked after me and, uh, you know, that buckle I've got is as much theirs as it is mine. And, um, you know, Rid flew, you know, 4,000 miles across the world, as did Abby, my wife, and and Jake drove the best part of 14 hours to to be there. And you couldn't do it without them because they they were there by my side in the most difficult parts of the race. And, you know, we touch on that in in a minute or two, I'm sure. It's really admirable for you to say that as well, because at the end of the day, your legs carried you 240 miles. But it's nice to know that you know that without them, that it may have not been possible, which is really nice for you to say. And I know that they're, I'm sure, super proud of you, like loads of people are. Thanks, man. When you look at that last 40 miles, now I know things do get a bit hazy because of certain reasons, lack of sleep, maybe too much caffeine, as you've previously described, maybe a few other bits. What are your memories and what can you kind of grasp in that last 40 miles? So I remember leaving the Giza Pass aid station and running down uh, the mountain towards Uwa Lake. Now in that section, I think I, I listened to a playlist that had some music on, um, and then one of the songs made me quite emotional. I think it was like a stereophonic song or something like that, and uh, I just started crying. I was like, because I knew in my head that, and in no way at all was this arrogant, but like I knew getting within 40 miles that I could do that. It's in my tank, I know I've got 40 miles in the locker. Um, so it, that is a manageable distance. And that was a mistake. So that that was a mistake in thinking to myself, you've run this distance before, you can do it again. But what I didn't take into account was the fact that the terrain would be so changeable, so difficult in those last 40 miles as well. So, you know, Rid got me back on the straight and narrow and, um, you know, we got down to the Uwa Lake car park. I, I used the toilet there, splashed some water in my face and, and tried to make the most of it. And then I noticed like one or two runners coming up behind me. I was thinking, okay, I need to step it up again. So then I kind of picked up the pace. I think at one point I was coming down the mountain, I was running like 11 minute miles and it was just absolutely flying. And then I got to this bend in the road and looked out in front of me. And in the distance, you could see where Moab was meant to be, but it looked like so far away. Like, and it was that point that probably I was like, oh wow, this is like, actually, this isn't just 40 miles. This is like 40 miles at the end of running 200 miles. That's a different thing. And I, I probably got ahead of myself looking at that point. How present are you in that moment? Pretty present. Like, present enough that I can remember now exactly what it looks like and it still gives me the same sensation thinking oh wow that, that's a long way because you can see it often on, on, on the horizon it's 40 miles away but you know that you've got to get down there somehow but then all of a sudden you turn left and you're not going right in the direction of where you're meant to be going you're thinking why aren't we going down this way and I started to challenge things I started to say why are we going this way why are we not going that way this way is more direct like why would we want to go to the left that just doesn't make sense and they're like, no, this is the route of the course. But then I'm starting to lose grip of what the route of the course is. So then I'm getting signal from my phone for like the first time in three days, start ringing Abby saying, where are you? What are you doing? Starting to question why we're here. And it's just kind of a slippery slope of different things, different scenarios, different mistakes that are starting to cause uncertainty, I guess. It's just like everything's adding together to suddenly kind of hit that turning point 
yeah if you will i feel like you should be charging me for psychology after this like post-traumatic <laughs> stress psychology or i'll charge you a roast dinner and you've already yeah. paid me that's all good <laughs> it's amazing what the human body and the human mind can do and you must have had to really experience something you maybe haven't experienced before in that last 20 miles when i saw the video of you particularly in the last little bit it was like jesus like you're yeah. really digging deep here. Like there's there's not much left in the tank. So I never did give you my amateur theory of the day. So my amateur theory of the day of what happened to me was that when your body and your mind are so physically exhausted that you need sleep, you need to give your body sleep. No big theory there. However, if you caffeinate and you overload with caffeine, what happens is that drug fights against the body's natural inclination to sleep and where it gets weird is that by forcing yourself on you kind of come into this almost like parallel universe where you can't you can't differentiate between what's real and what's fake and it's really really difficult to describe and i'm not sure unless you've run 240 odd miles you can ever get there through anything other than um, illegal substances, I would say. Yeah, it's hard to describe. You kind of lose a, a real grasp of reality. And in those last 20 miles, you know, I was really challenging Rid on things. He was getting annoyed. Then I'd just lie down on the floor and um, I would, I'd say, why are you making me run? I've already finished the race. That was just the afternoon of that day. I should have been finishing in the light based on where I was in the race at that point. Uh, instead, you know, it just all kind of started to unravel and, yeah, ultimately I paid a big toll for it. Your wife obviously um, ran the last bit with you. To kind of get you to that finish line, have you got any memory at all of that last 16 miles? Yeah, I've got very vague memory. So the section before the last 16, I kind of lost it completely and it only came back to me momentarily in the aid station I can't remember getting to the age, that last age station on Porcupine Rim. I remember vividly, it was almost like, a, if you're like watching a film and they go, whoosh, back to reality. Okay. Yeah. That happened. So and blurry and then yeah, something. Yeah, real blurry and then boom, back into reality. And it was at that point that I kind of grasped that I was still in a race. And then I started crying, don't know why. And all these Americans like sat around laughing, like you know, people come through here in all states and... I was crying my eyes out because I knew like again I got ahead of myself like 16 miles 16 miles this little over two hours or whatever it might be should be mm. uh, but not after that kind of distance so um, you know the guys were great they kind of you know kind of herded me and said look come on eat this do this let's take some stuff out of your bag you don't need much now you know it's only 16 miles you've got this and I, I left the aid station running and Abby was obviously uh, enlisted to do the last section with me which was awesome and you know to be fair to these guys like the crew and I didn't mention it the last time we talked about the crew just then but like they were going into some real remote terrain in a, a four by four it's taken them hours to get to each aid station so these guys are knackered by this point but they're still being so patient with me so we set off running and Abs is out of the car for the first time running with me and I think I probably got maybe like 800 meters got to the first hill and it just started to unravel again. I could feel it happening. It was so frustrating because I knew I really wanted to run and Abby really wanted me to run, but I just genuinely physically couldn't do it. I was trying my hardest, but I don't think it was because I was physically battered that much. I had some really bad blisters, but not bad by standards that I've had in the past. I just felt thoroughly and utterly exhausted, I think. And because I'd had so much caffeine, I couldn't sleep. So it was just this kind of limbo state where I was kind of sliding around from side to side, getting slower and slower. People were starting to pass us. We encountered some Scottish mo uh, cyclists at one point, mountain bikers. That made things weirder because I'm like, why the hell are these Scottish people out here in the side of the desert on the side of a mountain, mountain biking? You know, are they in on it kind of thing as well? And I was kind of waving my arms around and swearing and saying, I've, I've finished the race why is the witch making me run more? The witch being my wife, of course, who's not really a witch normally, just during these events. And yeah, it just kind of all started to unravel and it got dark, it got super cold and, you know, we weren't moving quick enough to, to warm up. 
Then we bumped into one of the photographers, which is really bizarre. So why, you know, all of a sudden you're on the side of this mountain, you've got a, a thousand foot drop down the one side to the Colorado River. And I can remember it, the noise and the dust and the, the kind of mist and everything's really vivid, but the bits in between kind of aren't, if that makes sense. So the elements are vivid. And I remember, you know, bumping into the photographer and Abby and her having a big chat and she was saying, oh, it's, her name's Hilary. Um, really lovely guy. All the photographers, Scott Rockus and, and Hilary Ann, really, really nice guys. I was talking to her and she could see like I was clean out of it. And I just lay on the floor and tried to take a dirt nap and that didn't really work. And she, she was telling Abby, I've just seen a scorpion and all this kind of stuff. Got moving eventually. And um, I remember kind of falling over, I think. I think that's what happened. And um, the river was on the right-hand side, probably a couple of feet to the right-hand side, but like a thousand foot drop down and you could hear it. And I just remember looking to the left and seeing this kind of huge overhanging boulder. I thought, I've seen Bear grills. I'm going to sleep under the boulder. So I scurried off underneath this boulder and Abby's like, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to make a fire. She's like, you've got nothing to make a fire. And then I started rubbing dirt between my hands, trying to make a fire. And um, yeah, just lay down in the dirt. And Abs told me it was like minus four or something like that out there. And she's crying because she's like, we need to get moving. If you don't move, you're going to get hypothermia or something. And, you know, something bad's going to happen here because we're still remote there's no road up here like there's only road for like the f last three miles and it wasn't what i expected the last section to be like in my head which made it even more weird there were other runners coming past other runners trying to help and i was kind of shooing them away uh, and eventually this um this lovely guy i'd never met him before runner from utah called jason wooden came past and he had some kind of cookie crackers and they had a dog with them and a lovely woman who was pacing him and somehow they kind of coaxed me out, you know, come on, underneath the rock, come on you, get the crackers, let's get you out from underneath the rock. And yeah, I finally crawled out from under my rock and kind of staggered around like uh, an extra on The Walking Dead, you know, like the zombies, like the, the herds just moving ever slowly towards the, the finish line. And um, yeah, eventually you could see some lights off on the on the road down next to the river and we made our way down and yeah marched along like um like the zombies and then this car came screeching up and like the medical director comes out of the car and everyone's like oof i think he wants a word with you i'm like what do you want to chat about this guy called todd who i met in the check-in who's actually really nice but you know obviously he doesn't want anyone to die so he comes over and it was have you ever seen like cops Sir, we're going to need a chat with you. And like pulls me aside from the other oh, runners. And I was like, no. I'm like, what's this guy want? Like, what's, what's his beef? Kind I'm of. Fine. I'm like, I'm absolutely fine. He's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm in Moab. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, what's it look like I'm doing? <laughs> and he's like, are you racing? I'm like, yeah. He's like, why aren't you running? I'm like, because I don't want to. It's my prerogative. I don't want to run. Thank you very much. Now leave me alone. And then he was like, he was, he was like yeah, I think he's fine. Just get him to the finish because it's just drawing on. And basically what happened was that, you know, the, the runner's pacer had moved ahead to like tell him that they've got this kind of crazy wild Welshman out on the course who's sleeping under the rocks, thinks he's Bear grills, uh, and he's talking to cowboys and we need to get him to the end before he does himself more harm. So, um, yeah, just like kind of marched it in towards the end. And, um, yeah, I remember uh, Dirt Diva. You ever seen her on Instagram? Catra Corbett. Oh, okay. She, she ran past me in like the last two miles. And I was like, I think that's her. I'm not really sure whether that's her or not. Uh, it was her. And fair play to her. I think she did the Triple Crown this year. It's just, just an incredible achievement. Um, and she was lovely too. So, yeah, we made it to the end. And, um I just remember like coming down into the arch and Jason was still with me. Like he had his moment and um, the boys and, and abs were like, right, do you want your Welsh flag? And I couldn't even lift it up properly. And then I got round the corner. It, the, the finish line is bizarrely in like this trailer park. It's not like Western States where you do the final lap round the, the track or you know, the London Marathon where you come down the mall. It's like you run down a ramp into a trailer park round the corner and then you're under a big blue arch. That's the one thing that, like, it, I don't know, it, it could could be a slightly cooler place mm -hmm. for a finish line. However, 
it's nice to see a finish line after 244 miles and it's even better when your friend Rid Morgan with no middle name sits and feeds you pizza at the finish line without any uh, words from myself so it was kind of like when you feed a child you're like here comes the aeroplane and he did that for an hour bless him uh, I didn't talk for an hour I was just kind of traumatised by the whole thing it's amazing to be able just to sit down and talk to you through the whole story I mean you're the first Welshman ever to do it which is is genuinely incredible and it's something I know you said before like that was for you but it's one of those things that no one's ever going to be able to take that from you have you given yourself a second because I know I know what you're like in terms of speaking to you for an hour before and speaking to you for a bit of time now you don't seem like the sort of person that'll sit back and smell the roses very much. You'll want to do the next thing and the next thing and the next <laughs> thing. This you is, know me well. This is incredible. This is this Thanks. is something that no one's ever going to be able to do again. You genuinely have done something that no one will be able to do. They can't break this record. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, mate, thank you. I mean, you said some really kind things there and... Um, yeah, no, I haven't really, to be honest with you. I'm a bit annoyed at myself because I, I know that I was inside that top 20 and if I'd slept for a little bit longer... Oh, and that's if, such a mental thing to say. Yeah, but like, I'm really pleased because before the race, I would have been I would have been happy to finish. So finishing 35th, I'm really, really pleased about. But knowing that I was inside that top 20 and if I'd, through no fault of anyone else's other than my own not been some gung-ho in my approach to that last 40 miles I probably would have finished you know maybe even in the top 15 so it's um it's disappointing slightly from that aspect but for me to like be the first Welsh person I haven't really thought about it other than like yeah it's pretty cool nice photo I suppose and yeah made it into the big time by getting into the Wales on Sunday once kill the Wales on Sunday exactly uh, to be fair, like you know, my brother was uh, the first Welshman to finish Badwater this year, and and that really impresses me. And you know, whilst uh, ultra runners might know the Moab two forty is, um, you know, outside of that, it's just uh, us guys and you know these ultra running communities. So it's um, it's kind of a case of what do I do next? What was your phone like when you switched it on and you finally got to see some of the messages? It was amazing, amazing. Thank you for all your support and. You know, thank you to all my friends and family and, and people I've never met as well, just sending amazing messages and um it's crazy, like your phone just blows up and I always take the time to like respond to every message I get on Facebook and, and Instagram and on my phone as well and so many like people just wishing you well and saying congratulations and stuff. It's actually a bit overwhelming. I'm not the Abby, my wife, and um, one of my best friends, Chris Ferrier, called me the Tin Man because uh, I'm a man of few emotions. And um, I remember speaking to uh, I cried multiple times during this race like a baby. And uh, I remember speaking to um, uh, Jenna, my sister-in-law, on the phone and. Um, she was with her husband Mark, who's uh, a tough talking Scotsman, uh, very similar to myself, and that you know don't have uh, you know massive outpourings of emotion. And um, I just remember like started crying because she said, "Oh, you're like a, a hero, and I'm so proud of you and stuff." And I was like, "I don't feel that way," but that really got to me actually. I mean, I'm going to say something now that I wanted to say for a while, and I haven't really texted this to you or said it to you because. I just didn't feel like the right point, but I feel like ending this with this is potentially the right point. I feel really proud of you. Thank I you. really do. And like to have sat down before this race and talked about it and about your goals and the fact that you've wanted to do it and then you to go out there and actually make your, I mean, risk of sounding corny, dream of reality... It's something that not many people ever get to do something like that. And as I said, no one can ever take this away from you now. And I know you're not that sort of person that we spoke about to sit down and smell the roses, but mate, you should be so proud of yourself and be proud of what you've done because finishing 35th in one of the toughest races on planet Earth is unbelievable. And to come back and just be you and be a normal chap and just be chatting away and just having a having a glass of whiskey with me it's just really nice to it's really nice to see that 
the human body and the human mind and its potential is genuinely infinite and uh, for you to be putting that to use is incredibly impressive wow i mean <laughs> mate I'm, I'm so touched by that it, it really means a lot to me and um I, yeah, I don't really think about any any of that stuff. It's, it's generally so kind of you to say. I really, really appreciate it. You're doing that eye contact thing with me again as well, and I still no, don't know how to deal with that. But um, <laughs> I, I, I'm really, really grateful um, for all the support you've given me and, and all those humbling words, which really means a lot. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to, to all my friends, my family, and all the people that have supported us along the way. And um, yeah, I, I guess like coming from Wales, you know, it's a small country. There's not that many people there, and um, you know, I just wanted to to do something to to kind of make people proud, and um, you know, hopefully in my own little way, if you know, can help people to to want to get out there and run and, and do some good things for charity, then you know, that's a, a good thing to do with life, I suppose. So um, yeah, it's uh, hopefully uh, represented the country proud. You're a legend. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on the show. What a race, what a race. And massive thank you to Scott for choosing Why in the World to properly debrief his Moab 240 experience. I know Scott and Reese, his brother, are going to be talking at the National Running Show in the new year. And that talk is going to be incredible. So make sure if you can get there, go and see them. We will be back in the new year. The second Wednesday of 2020 is when the first episode of 2020 comes out. Then we'll be back on our usual two-week schedule. I want to say a massive thank you to you for listening, for subscribing, for reviewing this year and making the podcast what it is. Uh, We've got listeners across the world now and that is down to you. If you haven't yet rated or reviewed the show, please get that done for us and I will catch you in 2020.